Well, we'll come to a time now in our service. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what you should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to 1 Samuel 30? It's on page 213, and when you found that, would you stand with me, and I'll read that for us. 1 Samuel 30, just to catch you up as you're turning there, um, since last week, we kind of jump over a few chapters here, but David has kind of had enough of running around, getting away from Saul. So he moves up to Philistine country, actually. He kind of joins, makes an alliance with the Philistine king, Ashish, and he's fighting along with him now. He's kind of saying, hey, can I hang out with you? Uh, the king gives him a city, Ziklag. He says, yeah, you and your men, this is going to be your new address. You live in Ziklag now. And it's a pretty incredible scenario going on. But what happens is eventually the Philistines, they're one of Israel's greatest enemies, actually. So they start heading towards this big battle between Saul and the armies of Israel. David says he'll go along, but all the commanders say, no, 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 forget it. We're not bringing David and his men with us. They'll turn on us in battle, and we're going to be totally hooped. So they won't let him go. King says, sorry, I'd like to take you. I can't. He sends David back home to Ziklag. Well, they head off to fight in this battle against Saul and the Israelites. And that's where we start here, chapter 30, verse 1. David and his men uh, reached on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, found it destroyed by fire, their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And this is awesome because he wasn't even talking about rescue. He was just saying, hey, will we find them? He says, you're going to find people and you'll rescue them. So this is awesome. Verse 9, David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezer Ravine. It's like it just jumps to the fact, okay, and they, they left. They're just like, okay, go. Take off. They take off to the Bezer Ravine where some stayed behind. Verse 10, for 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, To whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerithites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. Now, he's got somebody here in his hands right now that's part of the raid on his city. But the amazing restraint of David to kind of say, what's the big goal? We want the whole party. So he follows up with him. Okay, can you lead me to this raiding party, he says. And he answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I'll take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, 
scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. And now in the greatest take-your-family-to-work party ever, verse 17, David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of their livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Just ask God's blessing on this time and his word. Spirit of God, we ask you to be present with us once again. We believe you have already been present with us this morning. And now we're asking as we come to your word, would you speak powerfully through this word to our hearts and to our lives? God, we believe this is a living word by which you bring about change. You bring about transformation because of this. And I'm asking you to do that here. Uh, you say in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us here today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Hey, it could always be worse. It could always be worse. You ever heard that before? You ever said those words to somebody? Uh, now, of course, when things seem as bad as they can get for us, we don't really believe that. <laughs> we don't, or at least we don't want to believe that. We say things all the time like, I don't think things could possibly get any worse than they are right now, only to find out that you were wrong and they actually could. Uh, I remember it was during some of the early years of our marriage, which if you haven't heard me talk about this before, were some of the darkest, most difficult years of our lives as a family. Uh, we were living in this two-bedroom apartment, barely making ends meet as I tried to work and my wife tried to finish her studies at UBC while also caring for our, our first daughter. It, it was an incredibly busy time, incredibly stressful time, and we were also barely able to keep our marriage together. Uh, I, I know God had a plan in it all, but there were many days early on where our family hung by nothing more than a thread. And, and home was a place that um, I, I dreaded returning to a lot of times because it was just filled with a lot of pain, a lot of conflict, tears. Um, I, I think we both would have said at that time, this is as bad as it could possibly get. Until uh, shortly before Christmas, because uh, I just simply wasn't able to function properly in life with all of this stress and everything going on at home. And so I was called into the office of my place of work and told that I was being let go effective immediately. That was worse. That was worse. Uh, honestly, I, I felt in that moment, in that day, like a little bit like probably the Apostle Paul did in Acts 28 after he barely survives a shipwreck, swims to shore, and then immediately a snake jumps out of the grass and bites him in the hand. It's just like, come on! Really, God? Like, a little break here, please. That's kind of how I felt. And yet, if you even think that was as bad as it could get, 
The day I came home and told Sarah, hey, I've lost my job, was also the day that she found out she was pregnant with our second daughter. So, hey, it's a good thing God gave us two awesome daughters to raise. Otherwise, who knows how that would have worked out. Uh, we are continuing in this teaching series this morning, After God's Own Heart, looking at the life of David, a man the Bible itself describes this way as being after God's own heart. And already through this series, as was my hope, I think we've had our definition of what we think uh, this should look like broadened, right? We, somebody after God's own heart, we've had that picture kind of broadened as we've studied a number of places in the life of this man. The Bible describes that way. And as we continue to broaden that definition, what we're going to see in this passage today is how the one after God's own heart responds when things seem as bad as they can get. And he comes home, his city's burned, everyone's abducted, and then they get worse. Because now, bitter in spirit, his army wants to stone him to death. It just goes from bad to worse to worse. Which is just simply to ask, how do we respond? How do you respond when you are striving to be after God's own heart and life still goes bad? What do you do? Now, for most of us, whether it's something as devastating as David's story or not, when crisis hits and we sail into that fog where the direction of where we're supposed to go next seems totally, we're not able to find it, what most of us do is, is we'll, go, we'll go on and try every strategy we know of Everything we can think of to try in the situation first before we go to God with empty hands and say, okay, God, you're my only hope here. Man, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard in my life people say, well, we've tried everything we know how to do now. I guess the only thing left to do is pray. It's like the only thing left to do, really? And I think the reason we do that is because whether we acknowledge it or not, and although it's found nowhere in the Bible, many of us still hold to the false belief that God only helps those who help themselves. That if we go to God with our problem, what he's going to say is, well, did you try this? Have you even thought to do that? You know what? I'm really busy. If you could just do those things first, don't, don't, don't come to me right away. You haven't even done this or this. We think God's like that. And so because of that, we think, well, I've got to do everything I can first before I can come to him. What we see in our passage here today is that David has a very different strategy when it comes to facing crisis in this life. And rather than concluding with going to God, he begins there. He starts there. We see it explicitly in verse 6 there, where David is faced with this devastation in front of him, and now even his own life is threatened. And how does David respond? The text says, But David found strength in the Lord his God. And all I want to do here this morning is, we look at this text together, is just talk about how David wasn't able to do that. How did he do that? Of course, with the hope that we might learn how to do that ourselves today, whenever it is that we face a crisis ourselves. And I see David's ability to do this. It's almost like a progression of events. It kind of builds upon each other. I think David is enabled to begin with seeking God rather than concluding with that because, first of all, he has clarified expectations. Those clarified expectations then clarify his vision. They clarify where it is he should look first in the midst of this crisis, and then on the basis of those two areas of clarity, he's then enabled to discover a clarified direction. So that's how we're going to look. I'm going to break down the passage that way this morning. I want to show you David's clarified expectations, David's clarified vision, and then finally David's clarified direction, clarified expectations, vision, 
direction. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage? 1 Samuel 30, follow along with me. As we look at how this man after God's own heart is strengthened somehow rather than crushed as he faces this devastating crisis in his life. Okay, so let's look first of all at clarified expectation. Clarified expectation. Now, if you remember what I said about this story leading up to our passage, right? David and his men have fled to Gath. Very ironic of all places because this is the homeland of, of the Philistine Goliath. He's, this is where he's camping out now. And he's been fighting alongside with the Philistine army while David tries to lay low from Saul's pursuit of him. You see this all in chapter 27. The only clarification is to say that David is only saying that he's fighting alongside the Philistines. He's, every time the king asks him, hey, what were you doing today? He says, oh yeah, I went out attacking different villages of Judah, when really he's going out attacking Amalekites, uh, other enemies of Israel. So he's not really fighting with the Philistines. But because the king believes that David is on his side, now he's like, okay, if he's attacking Israel, then there's no way they're going to take him back. He's mine now. And so he gives him this city to live in. He's like, you guys get Ziklag now. That's going to be your city. I want you to set up home there, build your families there. But in chapter 29, now comes the day where there's this big battle. It's been brewing for a long time now. Now the Philistines are actually going to do battle against Saul and the armies of Israel. And as I said, the commanders of the Philistines are like, there's no way we're taking David and his men with us. They'd be right in the midst of us. And if they turn on us in battle, like we are done for. So we won't take them. And so, although he wants to, he doesn't take them. Ashish, the king of Israel, sends David and his men back to Ziklag while they go off to fight Saul and the armies of Israel. And if you look at verse 1 of our passage here, David and his men finally reach Ziklag after a three-day journey. So they're tired out. And then, only to find in verse 3, the city has been raided and burned to the ground, and all of the women and children, everybody, gone. And I think it's important to note, although we know from verse 1 and 2 who it was that raided Ziklag, as well as that no one had been killed, David and his men don't know that. They, they, they haven't read this passage. So all they know is just their city's in ashes and everyone's gone. So understandably, in verse 4, they're devastated. They just think, we've lost everything. And they weep until they have no strength left to weep. But although David and his men have both lost everything, and verse 5 is careful to point that out, it's not as though being after God's own heart meant that David and his family and stuff is all protected and everyone else's is gone. No, no, no. They both suffered identically. Although they've both lost everything, you see two very different responses to this crisis in verse 6. David, we're told, he finds strength in the Lord, while everyone else becomes bitter in spirit and then wants to take out their agonizing disappointment on David. Which if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at the story of David and Goliath in chapter 17, you'll remember this is not the first time that David has found the strength to faith face a fearful situation differently while everyone else is held captive by it. Everyone else can't deal with it, but David somehow finds strength to be able to face this fearful situation. And the question that we asked then, we're going to ask now, how did he do it? How was he able to respond differently than all the, everyone else in his army to the very same circumstances? And I believe the answer as to how David did this, although equally devastated by these circumstances, to not be crushed by them, was very simply because his expectation of being after God's own heart had a category that included suffering. 
Being after God's own heart had a category that included suffering as a part of it, which is simply to say for David, the presence of suffering and loss wasn't evidence of the absence of God, but the opportunity of God. And he believed that because whether it was a lion attacking his sheep, a giant attacking his army, or a king chasing him around the desert, he had evidence after evidence after evidence of the way God had used fearful circumstances in the past as an opportunity to demonstrate his sovereign power to redeem despite any obstacles. He had all these evidences to look back on. And yet, I don't care who you are here today, every single person here has, is, or will still suffer under the false belief at times that if we were just following God well enough, if we obeyed Him the best, did everything the way that He wanted, He'd be present with us, and stuff like this would never happen. All of us at some point in time have believed this. If I just followed God well enough, He'd be with me, and bad things wouldn't happen to me anymore. And because we've believed that, just like David's men, we can become bitter in spirit when suffering comes anyway. And we believe that somehow we've lost God's presence. We've lost his care for us. And a classic example of this would be the way that uh, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, respond when Jesus finally shows up four days after their brother Lazarus had died. And what do they say to him? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here present with me, bad stuff wouldn't happen. So if you want to know the secret of David's ability to find strength in the Lord despite devastating loss, the first thing you need is a theology that includes the expectation of suffering rather than of exemption from it. Remind yourself that following Jesus means that you're delivered from your judgment for sin, not from the realities we all suffer under living in a world still groaning under sin's curse. And I believe it was solely because David had this clarified expectation that he is then enabled to have the clarified vision to look to God first to find strength and direction rather than as a last resort. So let's look next at David's clarified vision. Clarified vision. And you see this clarified vision both in the source of David's strength there in verse 6 as well as in the one that he seeks for direction, which we're going to talk about in our last point, in verses 7 and beginning of verse 8. In both of those examples, you see that the Lord is the first place David goes with this, when he's faced with this devastating crisis. And yet, although I didn't mention it in the last point, I think it's essential that we really feel David's emotion in this seeking of God for strength and direction. It's not like David is just floating above these circumstances, unmoved by them. You know, that, that he shows up to his soldier and he's like, you know what, guys, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'm going to go to God. We're going to work out a situation that's best interest of everyone. No, he's, he's devastated by this. He's shown up and, and everything is gone, just like everyone else. He feels the exact same emotion. He feels the exact same crushing defeat as all of them. He's weeping his eyes out like all of them. He's deeply distressed by the fact that the men that he's just been fighting alongside these past few years are now ready to form a lynch party and string him up. But what I really want to highlight here for you is another powerful contrast to the reality of suffering. We saw the contrast between David and his men, how they experienced it. 
But this is a contrast that you wouldn't actually see unless we had read chapter 28 through 31, which, of course, we, we don't have time for this morning. So I'm just going to tell you about it. Because what most commentators point out is that likely at the very same time, it's like parallel worlds happening at the same time, David and Saul are both facing devastating, fearful circumstances right now. We've already learned what David's circumstances are. What Saul is facing is the fact that Samuel's dead, so his kind of like guy that tells him what to do, gone. He's been told the spirit has left you. He doesn't have that, and he's now facing a huge Philistine army that he knows he has no power, no ability to defeat. So he is fearful, terrified, devastated as well, just like David. The difference being that David seeks God by a means that he's provided for him, priest, the ephod, whereas Saul is unwilling to listen to what God had already told him through the means he provided, and so he seeks strength and direction instead by a means that God has forbidden, namely Saul goes out and finds a medium. He finds a witch to call up the spirit of Samuel who had died to try to find direction as to what to do next. It's a messed up, messed up part of the Bible. We, we don't have time at all to get into that. There's, there's so much in that story. But if you go back tonight and read chapter 28, it'll be some great bedtime reading with you and your kids if you have them. You, you see this scene of like Shakespearean proportions like something out of a Harry Potter book, where, where a spirit claiming to be Samuel comes up out of the ground and then tells Saul what Samuel had already told him when he was alive and that Saul didn't want to listen to the first time he told him. It's crazy, crazy scene in the Bible. Point being this, listen, by pursuing something other than the Lord to find strength and direction in the midst of his crisis, Saul ended up with neither. He didn't have the strength to face it, nor did he have the direction of what to do. David, because he goes to the Lord first with his burden, finds both. And I think this is the situation, uh, this is where we come across that situation I mentioned as we began this morning. Because what we see an example of in Saul is also present in us many times as well. When we find ourselves in a situation and circumstances that are fearful, where the clouds of panic and desperation are pressing in on us and making the path of freedom impossible to find, and either because we think we've got to find our way on our own, or because we don't like what God has already told us, the path that he's already shown us, we'll pursue every other means but God to freedom, usually until we have no option left but him. But again... David is different. He's just different. And we have much to learn from him. When disaster strikes, when the smoke of disappointment, disappointed hopes obscures your path, you don't think it could possibly get any worse and then it does. What you learn from David here, and I, and I dare you to test this, I dare you to test this out, is he makes God the very first place that he goes instead of the very last hope once all other options are exhausted. He makes God the first place he goes. And look, when he does that, when he makes God the first place he goes, he gets what he seeks. He's given the direction. He's given the, the, the strength he needs that we're all desperately looking for in these circumstances. He's given it when he'll go to God first rather than making him the last resort. And listen, I, our God is, is gracious and compassionate. Okay? If you choose 
for whatever reason, to examine your options first. It's not like God is going to lock you out when you finally do come to him and when you realize that he is your only hope in the midst of crisis. He's not going to stand there like you or I would and just be like, oh, so now you want to show up. Oh, well, shouldn't need me before, I guess. Like that's how, that's why you should be very glad I'm not God and I'm glad you're not God. But God doesn't respond like that. He's gracious and compassionate to us. But just think about this. If the hope found in him alone is where you're going to end up anyways, wouldn't you rather save yourself the trouble? Wouldn't you rather save yourself the, the, the bruises and scars we all bear from trying to figure it out on our own and start there instead? That's where we're going to end up anyways. Why not start there? Because this is the freedom that clarified vision like this can offer you when we begin with seeking God rather than concluding with him. Because again, what we see exemplified in the life of David is that as he approaches this crisis with a clarified expectation of suffering, which then enables him to have clarified vision to make God the first place he seeks for help, God is faithful to hear David and grant him both strength and the direction that David and his men are all seeking, but David has learned can only be found in the Lord. So that's what we'll look at lastly. I want to show you this as we see how David's clarified vision leads him to God's clarified direction. Clarified direction. And this is ultimately what we're all seeking to find in the end anyways, right? When we're faced with a crisis, we, we know we can't change what's already been happened. What we want to know is, okay, what do I do now? Now what? Where do I go? Who, who, where should I go now that this is true? And what we see in the remaining verses of our passage is that as David comes to God for direction, God uses both supernatural means, this ephod, as well as natural means, the discarded Egyptian slave, to direct David and his men, not just to justice for the raiders, but also to a full recovery of everything that is presently lost to them. They get everything back. Now this ephod, I'm trying to say it properly, ephod, this has nothing to do with iPod or anything, you can't download music on this. You see in verse 7 here, he says, bring me the ephod. Bring me the ephod. What this was was a garment worn by the priest, and it had a breastplate with embroidered into it these stones, the Urim and the Thummim, which were God's appointed means, one of them anyway, to reveal his will to people. Apparently, uh, they would light up. One of the stones would light up in response to yes or no questions, which is obviously, that's presumably why, why David is inquiring of the Lord in the beginning of verse 8 when this ephod is brought to him. And what's revealed to David through this inquiry, it's greater than he even hoped to ask for. It's a greater discovery than he even thought to ask for because in the second half of verse 8, look there, he's told not only will he overtake the raiding party, but that there will be some people alive to be rescued. He says, not only will you, uh, uh, he says, pursue them, you will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue, which is, as we see, although physically and emotionally exhausted, re-energizes everybody. They're given strength when they realize this is even more than you hoped for, and they take off after the raiders, realizing this is now a rescue mission. But as they head off in pursuit, clearly they they need some more direction, right? Because they still don't know who they're pursuing or where they are. So if you look in verses uh, 11 through 16, we see now, for the cost of a little bit of food to revive him, as well as the promise of amnesty, 
God now uses the natural means of an abandoned Egyptian slave to lead David and his men to the exact place where both the raiders as well as all their captive wives and children are. And, and so miraculous, so clearly God-directed is this recovery mission once David has defeated the Amalekite raiders that verses 18 and 19, they make three separate references to the fact that David recovered everything. It keeps saying in all these different ways, he got everything. Everything that was lost, every bit of plunder, every family member, every sheep, every, whatever was taken, he got everything back. Nothing was lost. And although we didn't read it, the, the concluding verses actually show some really cool things about what this future king, how both wise he is as well as politically savvy he is. Because not only does he help instruct his men so that they don't end up plundering their own 200 guys who stayed back with the supplies. He also takes the sur surplus plunder, because they got more than they'd even lost. He takes that surplus plunder and starts sending it out to the other nations where he and his men were camping as they were running from Saul. He's, he's building political favor with everyone in the nation as he sends them this plunder and says, this is plunder from the Lord's enemies. Incredibly wise. And yet, much like we saw in the closing verses of Hebrews 11, if you were here for that series, even as we marvel at God's limitless ability to direct David on this truly miraculous rescue mission where everything that was lost to him was recovered, which is actually a really beautiful picture. It really has beautiful implications for the future restoration of all things that we can look forward to when Christ returns. I, I would want to guard all of our hearts here this morning against any kind of expectation when it comes to requiring God to direct you to the exactly same, exact same result that he directed David to. What I mean by that is, although this passage describes God's limitless ability to direct David to this miraculous outcome, it in no way prescribes the outcome that he must or will always direct us to. Again, as we saw in Hebrews 11, sometimes God will direct you on a path where you shut the mouths of lions, and sometimes he'll direct you on a path where you're devoured by them. Sometimes God will direct you on a path of freedom from suffering and loss, like we saw in the story of David here. Sometimes suffering and loss are the path that he's directing you on. As we saw most supremely in the death of Jesus on our behalf. That is the path that he was given to walk. But the point, and the thing that you can always rely on is this, because God has promised us that his purposes for us are always good, it means you can trust that the paths God directs you on are good as well, even when they don't lead you to the outcome that you would have asked for. As devastating and, and distressing as that day when David and his men arrived at an empty, burnt-out burnt Ziklag was to endure, it also provided the opportunity as David had come to expect, for God to demonstrate his sovereign power to redeem despite all obstacles. It's an amazing scene of God's ability to do this. And, 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 you know, looking back now all those years ago, as difficult and agonizing as it was for my wife and I to face then, that day in our two-bedroom apartment, when circumstances that we thought could possibly not get harder did, 
I can see now that it provided an opportunity for God to demonstrate his sovereign power to redeem despite any obstacles in our lives as well. Because as every other option for hope finally failed us and we were left with nowhere to turn but him, what we discovered was a gracious, compassionate Savior who'd been patiently waiting for us to look to him all along and who then directed us, in our case, to a path of healing and restoration, not, not of perfection, not of like immediate, hey, now everything's good, but a, a renewed hope for change, a renewed direction to a place of healing and hope that we've been building on since that day. I don't know what uh, crisis you're facing today. Some of you I do. I don't know what crisis you will face in this coming year. And I'm not going to stand up here for a second and tell you, hey, if, if you look to God first or even last, the path that he'll direct you on will look like David's. It might not. But what I pray you will absolutely draw from this story in the life of the man after God's own heart that we're looking at here, regardless of where you find yourself, is two things, both a present hope, a present hope in God's limitless ability Regardless of any obstacle your crisis might present to you, he is able to overcome it. That's what we're shown here. God has a limitless ability to help you. It can give you a present hope in the midst of whatever crisis you're facing. But what I pray you'll also draw from this is a future hope. A future hope in God's restoration so that whether you recover what's been lost to you in this life or not, we can all look forward to that day when the Lord's enemies are at last defeated and we return home with everything that's been lost and so much more. Amen.